Go there. Uh, I need somebody young. No offense. Small but strong. Anyone? Hey, don't make me choose you. Smaller than you. I, I need like a junior high. I'm just going to call it. I need like a junior high person. Um, all right, Andrew. Come on. It'll be you. Yeah. Yeah, we only got 20 minutes, so let's, you know, or 30 or 40, you know. All right. Have we met before? Yes. Yes. For those of you listening on the internet, this is Andrew. Say hi. Hi. Good. Andrew and I are going to play a game. It's called the trust game. We're going to see if Andrew trusts me. Do you trust me? Maybe. Maybe. All right. Now, here's what you're going to do. You're going to stand sideways, just like that. Now walk forward a little bit. Good. Now you're going to put your arms out, about like that. You good? All right, now, you got to close your eyes and no peeking. And when I, when I say, you have to fall back, and I promise I'll catch you, okay? Now listen, just excuse me for a second. If you don't do this, it blows the whole thing, okay? All right. This is unrehearsed. I just want you to know that. He had no idea getting up this morning he was going to be doing this. Okay, you ready? Now, and you can't bend your knees. You just have to fall back. But not until I say, not, I'm not ready. Okay, fall. <laughs> he didn't trust me, did he? All right, going to try this again, because now you know I'll catch you, right? Okay, I'm here. All right, ready? Fall. There we go. All right, good. Now, if I stood... If I stood down there, would you do it off the stage and let me catch you? <laughs> He's on the spot. Okay, we're going to change this up real quick. How much do you weigh? Uh, let's see, about 112. 112 pounds. Me too. All right. <laughs> okay, wait, don't move. All right, you ready? Again, if you're listening, Andrew is now going to catch me. Why are you... You're going to need to be closer. All right, you know what? Never mind. Well, I have no doubt that Andrew would catch me, but I also have no doubt that one of us would break something, and, and then he wouldn't have to go to school tomorrow because he'd be in the hospital. But thank you, Andrew. Well done. I need you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. And as you turn there, I want to start with this story. And it kind of goes along with what Andrew and I just did. There was a retired man who was going to go to a family reunion on the other side of the country. But he didn't want to go because of an intense fear of flying. And, and so all through his life, he had somehow managed to avoid air travel. At, at all costs, he just wouldn't fly. Trains, buses, those were his, his, his preferred means of transportation, if you will. Sometimes he would drive days to get to a meeting just to avoid the plane trip. But after much coaxing and prodding from his family, he finally relented and he agreed to fly to the reunion. After an easy trip and, and a safe landing, which, you know, sometimes those can be a little rocky, but after a safe landing, his family asked him, now that wasn't so bad, was it, Grandpa? And he replied this way. He said, I'll tell you this, the whole time we were in the air, not once did I put my full weight down. <laughs> Clearly, he doubted everything about an airplane, okay? Could you imagine flying that way? 
<laughs> I didn't put my full weight down because if I did, it might be what would drop this plane out of the sky. As we continue today on our series of close encounters with Jesus, we're going to have a close encounter with doubt. Have, have you ever doubted something in your life? Have you ever doubted uh, someone in your life? Have you ever had someone say to you, I promise I'll be there. Or no matter what, I will always be your friend. Or maybe you're in high school and you're in that special relationship and it's that I will love you forever. Probably not going to happen, ladies. No, I'm just kidding. Forever's a long time. At least get through college before you let somebody promise that to you. Have you ever been told something and, and in your mind you're thinking, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. Or you're thinking, I won't hold my breath. That's doubt. That's doubt. And we all go through it. We all experience it at different times, different things in our life. And I found a poem about doubt. And I want to share it with you. And it goes like this. Let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches. And I would surely be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on White Rock Lake, just on a puddle after the annual Dallas rain, and I would surely be like Peter. Let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on North Central Expressway, just a few bright lights on the way to chapel, and I would surely be your Paul. Let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime. Just meeting you in the word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? Will you pray with me? Father God, uh, this morning as we have a close encounter with doubt, as we open your word in, in John chapter 20, and we look at Thomas and as we, as we look further at the disciples, times when they doubted you, times when they doubted what was going on around them, I pray that we will glean from your word something that will encourage us, something that will give us foundation and strength so that when we do have a season of doubt, it will be so short-lived. It won't define us, but it will strengthen us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Jesus appears to Thomas. That's how it's, it's titled. It says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you there? Have you been there? 
I read an article in Christianity Today a little while back, and it was about Thomas and doubt. And I want to share it with you, not the whole article, because it was like a six-page actual part of the magazine. But it goes like this, and and it describes Thomas uh, very artistically, I guess. So I want you to picture this Thomas. Picture this. Thomas is, is gaunt, his face stark and raw, raw edged like a Palestinian landscape, sharpness of bone, hollowness of flesh. And there's something else, something in the eyes, a shrewdness, a wariness, a, a caginess. He is sparing with words. He watches. He listens. He can unnerve you with his silence, with the depths and layers of it. What is he thinking? Thomas is a doubter. The doubter. The doubter's patron saint, if you will. His name comes joined hip to bone, feather to wing, with that unshakable epitaph, Doubting Thomas. The Bible never describes Thomas this way. But it does describe his moment of doubt. It is one moment. Only one. And he moves quickly beyond it. But every time we refer to Thomas, we say, Doubting Thomas. His identity, despite our perception and description of him, is not rooted in that moment of his life. Yet we continually allow that moment to define him. I need to add a quick side note here. This wasn't in the Christianity Today article, but here's the thing. This man who doubted for a moment lived his life preaching Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to the Parthians, the Medes, the Persians, the Hyrcanians, the Bactrians, and the Margians. He met his fate in Calamine, the city of India, and was buried there. He doubted. But from that, went and did all these other things. There is much that is praiseworthy in Thomas. And when Jesus, hearing of his friend Lazarus, for example, and his sickness in Bethany, tells the disciples that they are going to go back there, the disciples remind him, there are people who want to kill you there, Jesus. But what does Thomas say? Thomas is the one that speaks up in John 11 and says, um, he, he says, let us go also that we may die with him. These are hardly the words of a chronic doubter. Yet his moment of doubt has both comforted and troubled us for so much for so long. I think it reflects back to our own stubborn and fragile faith. Our heart's own waywardness, our own waverings. That our, our remembrance of that moment for most of us, has eclipsed everything else about the man that I just described to you. It is a truth about Thomas that that if we dwell upon it obsessively, has become the myth about him. A character lapse that has become his all-defining character trait, doubting Thomas. This is unfortunate. After all, his doubt itself is earthy and real. He, He is, or excuse me, his is a doubt that often taunts us. It's a doubt that stands between the world's believing and doubting. Because his doubt is this. Is Jesus really risen from the dead? The disciples have told him, we've seen Jesus. And what does he say? Not until I see Jesus. Well, I believe. So right off the, at the start, his doubt is this. It, has he really conquered death? Is Jesus really alive? Or, or is this the claim that he has risen? Just a deluded wish fulfillment of, of a few men and women that have made, been made unstable by grief. They need that resurrection to console themselves and to vindicate their naive faith. That's really what he's saying in that, that one little statement. Not until I see. 
This is not our doubt. Excuse me. Is this not our doubt too? Is this not the doubt that we have to second guess, to explain away Christ's resurrection? Of course, that's the vogue of academia today. Just like Kenny was saying, if we can explain away the resurrection, we have nothing to worship. We have nothing to be here for. It's been that way for a long time, and and it shouldn't surprise us. I think all of us from time to time feel the chill of doubt. And we feel the chill of doubt's shadow. As, as a pastor, I often deal with, with things that, that happen. Uh, usually it's, it's that last minute, that phone call where everything is just horrible. Something bad has happened. There's been a wreck. There's, there's been an, an illness. There's, maybe, maybe there's been a death. And I've realized that believers respond to death. Uh, even our own approaching death. We respond to the death of loved ones. We respond to all of these things differently than non-Christians. We, we don't grieve as those without hope, but neither do we grieve as those without doubt. But we do grieve. I don't think that God ever intended us to, to meet death without grief. And, and I say that because as I was preaching about Lazarus, even Jesus wept over Lazarus' tomb where mere moments after calling himself the resurrection and the life, just before bringing Lazarus back to life, Jesus still wept. He still had sadness. The truth is, if we believed without doubt in the resurrection of Jesus, our living and our dying would look dramatically different from the way that it generally does. You're thinking, well, how so? I believe that he died for me. I'm, I'm here. I sang the songs. I, I, gave, I gave my money. I had, I had communion. I, be, I believe that he is preparing a place for me in heaven. I believe that he's going to come again. Really? Do you really believe that? Do you live like you believe that? Do you live like a believer or do you live like a doubter? You see, many of Jesus' disciples died cruel deaths for preaching the gospel. Just hone in on on the 11 after his resurrection. All these Christian men needed to do to escape cruel execution was to simply denounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this letter from Pliny to Trajan. And he says, it goes like this. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second time and a third time, threatening with them excuse me, threatening them with punishment, those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred back to Rome. That's a historical letter talking about the persecution of the men who believed and who preached Jesus' resurrection. Yet these men decided not to denounce Jesus. Why? Well, because people, they don't die for a lie. You wouldn't do that. These disciples must have seen something that made them choose a cruel death over denouncing their faith. Remember, the disciples are Jews. The ultimate promise of God to the Jews was the coming of a Messiah. Maybe. Just maybe they were convinced of having seen and touched the Messiah. The resurrection of the death may have given them the necessary push that made them overcome their doubt. But human nature is such that no sane man would give up his own life to a belief that he knows is untrue. 
And if anyone knew for sure whether Jesus did or did not resurrect from his death, it would be his disciples. In fact, we need to remember that Christianity was not spread by Jesus, but by these disciples. They willingly went out to tell people about Jesus, about his resurrection, about his life, and about what he was preparing for them while putting their life on the line. The historical fact that many of these disciples decided to give up their own lives to tell the world that Jesus has resurrected is very strong evidence that what they died for is the truth. The reason that many of these disciples were executed is this, and it's very simple. They refused to renounce their Lord Jesus Christ. That is the truth they were willing to die for. Let's jump back to Thomas. He's in this moment of doubt. Not until I see Not until I touch. Not until I know. Wow. Thomas's doubt, that's that's our doubt too. It's our our nemesis and it's also our companion. It's it's kind of like, I see Thomas's doubt as our secret haunting, if you will. Unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I touch it with my own hands, I will not believe. And that seems to be the heart of the matter. This, this is what stands between Thomas's believing and his doubting. It's two words. Unless I. I know what he means. I, I think we all do if we're really honest. We, we can have all the personal testimony and logical airtightness and verification in the world. But unless I see it and touch it with my own hands. I have to experience it myself. There's always a shade of doubt. Nothing, not, not a witness box, not a lab report, not the field dispatch. Nothing substitutes for the power to convince our own seeing and touching can deliver. It seems to me that those two words, unless I, have become the doubter's mantra. Has somebody ever been telling you a story? You should have been there. This and this and this. And it was amazing. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. <laughs> Wait a minute. So if you could have seen it, does that mean you'd believe what I'm telling you right now? I'm just not going to talk about Thomas today, though. I, I think that he is a good representation of most of us in this room and the people that are listening online. I think he's a good representation of that because in our core, we want to be bold. We, we want to do great things for God. But, but we get sidetracked. A while back, I talked about how we get stuck in the unknown with the fear of the unknown. And sometimes we get sidetracked in doubt, too, because the reality is, I think I think Thomas, he he wants to be bold. We want to be like Thomas back when Jesus was going to to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. Hey, let's all go so that we can die with him. But in reality, it's, it's hard to live and serve and glorify that which we cannot see in the same way that the disciples did. But we hold it in our hands every Sunday. It's right here. I would like for you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. As you get there, some of you will go, hey, wait a minute. This is the Great Commission. This is Jesus telling his disciples to go out and do all these great things in the world. You mean there's doubt there? Yes. Yes, there is. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 28. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The Bible goes on to say, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hold on a second. (laughs) Did you catch that? Some doubted. Now, understand, this is not just some group of random people who said, look, Jesus is walking up on a mountain. Let's go follow him. This is the 11. These are the ones, the same ones that had just recently celebrated the Passover meal with him. The same ones that had had their feet washed by him. The same ones who watched him go through the trial and the beatings and the death on the cross. The same ones, they saw all these things. The same ones that Jesus had appeared to, some of them twice already in the upper room when the door was locked. And these were the same men who watched and listened as Jesus told Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. These are those people face to face with Jesus through all those steps in his life. Who do they think they are? They don't get to doubt anymore. They, we only get to read about it and they saw it firsthand. And they're on the mountain and they worship him and then they doubt. I tell you, they watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would they doubt? They watched him himself raised from the dead. Why would they doubt? The Bible says some doubted. And what that means to me is it wasn't just one. And I'm also going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say it wasn't Thomas. All right. It wasn't Thomas. I'm just going to say that. The Bible doesn't say that, but I'm claiming that it wasn't Thomas. It was the other 10, but it wasn't Thomas. Now, in fairness to them, we need to look at the whole situation a little more closely. Uh, For starters, what were they doubting? We don't know just yet. Were they doubting that Jesus was the Son of God? Were they doubting that his resurrection was really happened? Were they doubting that he was actually going to ascend into heaven eventually? Were they doubting everything they'd seen in the last three years? What were they doubting? I'm not sure, but I do know this. I did a word study on this word doubted in this context and I looked at some different things and here's what I found according to Matthew Henry's commentary and what he had to say about this. We actually have to back up just a little bit to kind of get the whole context. Verse 17 says that before they doubted, when they saw him, they worshiped. When they saw him, they worshiped. Now, the fact that they worshiped him, that, that wasn't just one person either. It was they. The 11 are with him. They worshiped. Everybody together, all 11, worshiped. They gave divine honor to Jesus Christ, which signified somehow by an outward expression of, of adoration. We don't know what they sang. We don't know what they did, but we know they worshiped. They, they put him where he needed to be, so to speak. All that see the Lord Jesus with an eye of faith are obliged to worship him. Okay? So here we have the 11. They've gone through this journey. They know it's somewhere to the end, but they don't know everything. And and they're on the mountain and they worshiped him. And here's those three words, but some doubted. Some of those that were present, some of the 11 doubted. Now, I appreciate this next thought from Matthew Henry. Uh, And before we get cranked up on the 11 for doubting, I want to look at this note because even among those that worship, there are some that doubt. That's what Matthew Henry said. Even among those that worship, there are some that doubt. Did that sting a little bit? Even among those of us in this room right here, right now, who have been singing and giving and, and worshiping and, and having communion, there are some that doubt. 
the faith of those that are sincere may yet be very weak and wavering. And what you need to understand about doubt is this. Doubt doesn't necessarily mean we don't believe. Doubt does not mean unbelief. They doubted. The word used is edestasin. What that means? They hung in suspense. Here are the 11. They've come through this journey with Jesus. All right. They're they're coming to the end of it. And and they've just worshipped him. And and where it says they doubted, the word is edestasin, which means they hung in suspense. Kind of like the scales of the balance. It wasn't that they just doubted, I don't believe. It was they were in a kind of a place of suspense. What's going to happen next? He says he's going to leave. When is he going to leave? And it's hard to say. But these doubts were afterward removed and their faith grew to such a full assurance that they changed the world. Shortly after that, they're given the Holy Spirit and they're unleashed on the whole world in the book of Acts. It's a great story. We're going to get into that this summer. But I got to tell you, they, they hung in suspense. Jesus had said to them time and time again who he was, that he wasn't going to be here forever, that eventually he was going to leave and he was going to prepare a place and all these things were going to happen. And they come through one of the most grueling times of their life watching him go through all these things. And so their doubt wasn't unbelief. Their doubt was, what's going to happen next, Lord? Matthew Henry goes on to say this, and it tended much to the honor of Christ that the disciples doubted before they believed, so that they cannot be said to be credulous and willing to be imposed upon. You see, first they questioned, and they proved all things, and then they held fast to that which was true, to that which they found to be so. And before we get down on these people for having a close encounter with doubt, let's remember Thomas. He doubted, but the outcome of that, when he touched and he saw is he changed the world. There's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. Here's the thing. Our God is big enough for your questions. He can handle your doubt. Ask your questions, but then allow the scripture to show and prove the answers and then hold fast to the things that are true. Once you find the truth, apply it. You won't have to worry about doubt any longer. Because once you find the truth, you may wonder about time frames, but you will never have to wonder or doubt if God is near. Sometimes doubt will only succeed in keeping us from doing. I want you to listen to the words of this song. It's called On Your Way. I failed you, my Lord. 
Thank you, Lindsay. So what's holding you back? The unknown? Doubt? Whatever it is, just take one step away from it and step towards the right track. <coughs> Allow me to wrap this whole thing up today with something tangible. I want to give you something that you can take home and wrestle with this week. G. Campbell Morgan had already enjoyed some success as a preacher by the time he was 19 years old. But then he was attacked by doubts, doubts about the Bible, doubts about God. The writings of various cutting-edge scientists and agnostics of his day disturbed him. Authors like Charles Darwin, John Tyndall, Thomas Huxley, and Herbert Spencer. As he read these books and he listened to the debates, he became more and more perplexed. He became more and more discouraged. He became more and more filled with doubt. So what did he do? He canceled all of his preaching engagements. He put all the books that he had from these men in a cupboard and he locked it up. And he went to the bookstore. And he bought a brand new Bible. He said to himself, I am no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be. The word of God. But of this I am sure. If it be the word of God. And if I come to it with an unprejudiced and open mind, it will bring assurance to my soul of itself. The result 
Morgan says, the Bible found me. New assurance, and, and with that new assurance, in 1883, gave him the motivation for his preaching and his teaching ministry. He devoted himself to the study and preaching of God's word. Folks, there are a lot of good books out there. Many talented speakers and preachers who are sharing their talents and their thoughts with the world. Don't let the mysticisms and the feel-good religious thoughts of our tolerant world cause you to doubt what the Bible says. And don't just take my word for it either. Yeah, I'm, I'm studying and I'm preparing for my sermons. Uh, but listen, I'm human. I make mistakes. If you're listening to this today, don't just take for granted what I'm saying comes from the Bible. Open it up and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. And you can't use the excuse that I'm too young to understand it either. 19-year-old G. Campbell Morgan stopped and put away all other books. Now, students, I'm not saying you don't have to do your schoolwork, all right? But you can put down all that other junk. Read this. He put away all those other books that were full of good ideas according to the world around him. And he got back to the basics. He went back to the Bible. You can't say that it's hard to understand either because let me just tell you, I promise you he was not reading the message version in 1883. Okay, he wasn't even getting the NIV or the New King James Version at that point. Most likely he was studying from the King James Bible. Take your doubt. Take your questions. Take your guilt. Take whatever it is that you have and bring them face to face with Jesus Christ and his word. And just like Thomas, until I see, brothers and sisters, the only way you can see Jesus Christ today is right here in his word. You're not going to see him on TV. You're not going to see him on the billboards, but you're going to see him right here. And then, when you do that, we can bask in what Jesus told Thomas and the other disciples in the upper room. Because blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed I don't know about you, but I am blessed among those who have not physically seen my Jesus, but I believe everything the Bible says about him. Amen. And as we stand today and sing our decision song, if you have a decision to make, I pray that you will make it. If you've been struggling with doubt, I pray that you will leave your doubt here today, that you will run into his arms. You will take one step toward the right track. Will you stand and sing with us? And if you have a decision to make... Don't just stand there. Take that step.